A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week we'll be hearing how to make a computer processor from carbon nanotubes. And learning about the costs of sequencing ancient genomes. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. For decades, computers have been built using silicon. But if we want them to continue getting smaller and more powerful, soon silicon might not be up to the job. So what could replace it? Lizzie Gibney's here to check out a material of the future. At the heart of a computer is its microprocessor, a chip filled with tiny silicon switches called transistors. These create the computer's ones and zeros, and the smaller and more transistors you have, the better the computer's speed and power. But if we shrink silicon too far, then the chips start to heat up and they become inefficient. To keep improving computers, scientists think we'll need to replace silicon. And a promising alternative is carbon. Well, carbon nanotubes to be precise. So a carbon nanotube, or a CNT, is just a rolled up sheet of graphene. And graphene is an atomically thin sheet of carbon atoms. That's Max Schulocher from the Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at MIT. His team are interested in carbon nanotubes because they have some pretty unusual properties, like conducting electricity at an incredible pace. CNTs are also semiconductors, which means that this conduction can be turned on or off. Both these properties mean CNTs could be perfect for making transistors. I called Max up to find out what his team have been doing. Here at MIT, we're trying to use them to replace silicon, which is what all the devices inside of your computer chips are made from. And it's projected that if we could build a computer chip using carbon nanotubes as the core of these devices that switch inside of your computer, then we could make a computer uh, over an order of magnitude more energy efficient than the computers you're using today in your house. So because carbon nanotubes are such speedy conductors, I remember that years ago everyone first started getting very excited about the idea that we could use them in, in computers or in, in processes that are at the, the heart of computers. Um, but then nothing really came of that. What were the big issues that scientists and engineers found with actually trying to make processes out of carbon nanotubes? Yeah, so uh, once CNTs were discovered, there was a huge amount of excitement. But the challenge was how can you actually build 
a billion with a B, for instance, working transistors, which are all perfect and uniform, etc., and actually yield a working computer chip. And what is it about carbon nanotubes that make it so difficult to do that? Yeah, so for carbon nanotubes, there are really three major intrinsic challenges with a the material. There are what we like to refer to as material defects, manufacturing defects, and then intrinsic variability. So on the material defect side, when we grow our carbon nanotubes, they unfortunately don't all grow perfectly uniform. Uh, and it turns out that if you don't get the precise right combination of diameter and chirality, then some of these carbon nanotubes, instead of being a semiconducting material, they will instead be metallic, which means it's basically just a nano rod of metal. You can never turn it off. So that's the material defect. On the manufacturing defect side, when we have all these nanotubes, in order to get them onto the wafer after we grow them, we actually disperse them in a solution. And then we pour that solution over the wafer. And when the wafer dries, it leaves behind the nanotubes on the wafer. The challenge is that the nanotubes, while we want them to be perfectly isolated from one another, in the solution, sometimes they'll actually bundle together. That's like a manufacturing defect. And then the third challenge with CNTs is variability. So when we build a computing system, we need to be able to build billions of identical devices across an entire wafer. And we need to be able to tune each of these devices as well. And in the past, we've only been able to build one type of transistor using carbon nanotubes. So in this work, we figured out how we can build many different types and tune all of these different transistors across our wafer and make them very uniform as well. So it sounds like there's some pretty big hurdles to overcome. How did you manage to do that? What it required was innovations in processing. So how do we actually build these chips, new types of processing techniques, etc., as well as new circuit design techniques? So, for instance, for the manufacturing defects, these bundles of nanotubes that uh, are particles that end up on our wafer, we found a way that we could selectively wash off just these big bundles without washing off the good single isolated carbon nanotubes on our wafer. And then for the material defects, for the metallic carbon nanotubes, we came up with this design technique where the technique allows us to actually design circuits in such a way that they are immune to any of these remaining metallic CNTs that slips through the processing and end up in our circuit. So using all those techniques, you've made this microprocessor. What kind of tasks or calculations can it actually do? So it's a 16-bit machine running 32-bit instructions. So we can add or multiply or divide or, you know, take the exponent or square root of these 16-bit numbers. So it's not just a, some little kind of toy machine. It could do some pretty hefty calculations. Oh, yeah, definitely. You uh, can program this computer just like you would program pretty much any computer today. So this is like a microcontroller that you could pick up at a hobbyist shop to program and control a small robot, for instance. Wow. And so I'm guessing it's probably the, the, the biggest processor made of carbon nanotubes that, that's out there at the moment. This is definitely the, the largest and most complex digital system fabricated from carbon nanotubes. And even more broadly than, than that, it's the most complex computing system fabricated from any beyond silicon emerging nanotechnology. And the idea with going beyond silicon then, as, as we started out by saying, was that you want your system to be more energy efficient and maybe faster. Is this system there yet? Is it actually more efficient than silicon? So right now, what we've been able to show is that this technology can work. So the next step in the process is to focus on performance. 
we're not quite all the way there yet, but the progress is really becoming more rapid, and I think we're quickly approaching now a time when soon you'll be able to see tr computer chips made from technologies beyond silicon, which can outperform computer chips just made from silicon today. So how easy do you think it'll actually be then to transfer this into making a commercial product? We're actually already partnering very closely with industry uh, in order to transfer carbon nanotubes into their manufacturing facilities so we can actually you know, get these CNT chips out into the real world. So how long do you think it'll be before my mobile phone, say, has carbon nanotubes in it? I, I think if you asked me that question a couple of years ago, the answer would be we're not sure. I think now, given the progress that we've made in this work, that it won't be too long. We're talking under five years uh, till you'll begin to see chips that are still built with silicon, but also have some carbon nanotube circuits built right on top of them, for instance. Uh, so we're not talking about, I think, science fiction anymore. It's a matter of uh, when and hopefully not just if. That was Max Schulocker of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in the U.S., you can find his paper over at nature.com along with a News & Views article. Later in the show, we'll be hearing how the gene editing tool CRISPR can be used to create smart materials. That's coming up in the news chat. Right now, though, it's time for the research highlights. Read this week by Josie Alchin. If elementary particles were split into boxing divisions, neutrinos would be the lightest of the lightweights and now researchers have given them the most accurate weigh-in yet. These subatomic particles actually come in three possible types, but directly measuring their masses has proved challenging. Now, an international team of researchers has combined data from large-scale cosmology studies, like those looking at the leftover radiation from the Big Bang, with particle physics experiments here on Earth. By feeding information from both types of study into a supercomputer, they estimate that the lightest of the three neutrinos has a mass of at most 0.086 electron volts, making it at least 6 million times lighter than an electron. The researchers suggest that their finding will help in future experiments investigating dark matter and dark energy. Weigh up that research over at Physical Review Letters. By the end of 2016, the Zika virus epidemic in the Americas seemed to be declining but one group of researchers wanted to be sure. Because different countries might have different levels of monitoring and reporting, the team used an unusual method to measure Zika levels. They looked at how many international travellers had caught the virus while abroad in the Americas. They found a large number of Zika cases in people who had visited Cuba, suggesting a hidden outbreak in the country in 2017 that hadn't been picked up by local reports. This work highlights the way that a virus could be secretly spreading, even after an epidemic is apparently slowing. It also provides a method for monitoring the spread of diseases in countries where the local detection or reporting of cases is difficult. Fly over to Cell for more on this one. With advances in genetic sequencing technologies, it's possible to extract DNA and identify the genes and genomes of ancient peoples. This has allowed researchers to better understand things like how human populations have spread throughout history and how much Neanderthal is present in our DNA. And this research is booming. In the first half of 2019, we have sequenced more ancient genomes of humans than we have in the entirety of history. That's Keolu Fox. 
He's an ancient genomes researcher, so you'd have thought he'd be pretty happy about the increasing number of genomes being sequenced. But there's a cost to these advances. To sequence the DNA, you need to partially destroy the remains. Keolu has written a comment article in this week's Nature saying that human remains need to be used conscientiously. Reporter Nick Howell caught up with him and asked him what it is about the process that's damaging the remains. Right. Well, there is a particular bone that needs to be accessed in order to get the highest quality DNA, and it actually lives inside of the skull casing, and it involves the partial destruction of the skull in order to acquire this tiny little gyroscope inside of the ear that has a really high density and will give you nice, clean, accurate data. So the process of getting to that bone requires destruction. So do we have a sense of how many specimens have already been damaged? Yeah, I think it's really hard to pin that down. I mean, we're probably in the thousands. But the the very clear point is that that number has exponentially increased and it is only going to include more and more destruction of bones and the creation of ancient DNA. Are there no sort of checks and balances in place? Do researchers not have to ask permission? Like, how does it work if one wants to use these ancient remains? That's a great question. And I think that's one of the central points of the article that we just published. And the idea is if there is no checks and balance, if there is no ledger system to create accountability, then it's going to be a wild, wild west cash grab or what we're calling a bone rush where investigators are flying all over the world getting access to bones from regions where they're not from or don't have any sort of historical relationship to. And then they are you know, promising participation in a project that would be published in a marquee journal. So it creates this feedback loop of the destruction of more bones and the creation of more scarcity. So let's say, hypothetically, I was a researcher doing this. Would I just be able to fly out to a country where there are some ancient remains and take those remains and sequence it and that would just be fine? Well, I mean, I think it's a little more subtle to that, right? It's sort of like the who you know model. And it has to do with who are the individuals that are safeguarding access in museum collections or auction houses all over the world. Right, and given that this ancient DNA can give us insights into important questions about our past, what what can we do to use the remains more conscientiously? I, I think you hit it right on the nose, Nick. It's the idea that the questions should guide the destruction of ancient remains. You have to ask yourself, is it worth destroying one of those samples in order to approach a question? And then there's a larger sort of accountability where we need to think about, are the living ancestors of those remains comfortable with us destroying that for the name of science? Is this scientific pursuit actually going to have impact in that community? So if I was to give you like ultimate control over how this is decided, like what would be the policies that you would implement to try and help safeguard these materials? So two things. One is we really need to think about slowing down and slowing down this bone rush culture, this Wild West culture of people just 
going through the back door and getting access to ancient remains and not following the proper procedures and protocols and not respecting the wishes of the living descendants of those ancient remains today. So that involves having stricter sort of regulation for museum collections. This involves journals like Nature requiring stricter consent and access and asking questions about that and really engaging diverse stakeholders in a way that privileges multiple types of perspectives, potentially having a council of experts that decides when and how much of something can be used to answer a specific question. And the second idea that I think will go a long way is thinking about accountability on the material side of things. Just like timber and minerals are meticulously tracked at truck way stations and other venues, we can discourage the sort of illegal acquisition of resources from curators, researchers, and others by openly documenting the passage of those ancient remains from one institution to another. In addition to that, documenting how much of the material is destroyed, what it originally looked like before and after an experiment via a CT scan, and actually publishing the negative results, i.e. results that didn't work, instead of just focusing on the ancient genomes that were successful. So who would be responsible for holding people to account? Would it be journals? Would it be funding bodies? Like, how would it work? Regarding who holds people accountable, I think this is a collective issue. So it's not just journals. It's not just regulatory bodies. It's not just funding bodies. It's not just policymakers, geneticists, bioinformaticians, archaeologists. It needs to be a collective decision amount around the regulation of who gets access to these materials. Because right now, it's only serving a handful of people. That was Keolu Fox of the University of California, San Diego. You can find his comment piece over at nature.com slash opinion. And speaking of ancient remains, there's a research article in this week's Nature about the discovery of a fossil hominin skull that's millions of years old. And that's the first topic on today's news chat. I'm joined in the studio by Ewan Calloway, senior reporter here at Nature and resident hominin expert. Hi, Ewan. Hello, how are you? Very, very well. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, first question then, what, what do we know about this skull and why is this find so important? Yeah, the skull belongs to a species called Australopithecus anamensis. Um, Australopithecus is a, a genus of early, early Homo. It's uh, the same genus from which the famous fossil Lucy is part of. But Australopithecus anamensis, what the skull belongs to, is a little bit older. Yes, and Lucy comes from the different species then, Australopithecus afarensis. And she's pegged as being, what, 3.2 million years old, as I understand. Where does this new fossil fit in? So this new fossil, it's about 3.8 million years old, and it was found in 2016 in Ethiopia, and it probably belongs to an adult male. What's so interesting, I think, about this fossil is uh, what it tells us about the relationship between this species, Australopithecus anamensis, and Lucy species. And for the longest time, based on incomplete fossils, really, we thought that this older species, anamensis, was a direct ancestor of Lucy species. But what this skull shows us is that that might not be the case at all. It could be, and it seems likely the authors say, that these two species kind of 
coexisted at the same time. And so it's, it's thrown some confusion into an area where we thought we knew, which is what these fossils often do. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of information then sort of held in this fossil skull. I mean, you and I have talked before about how rare it is to find, you know, more, more than a few fragments of bone. What, what, what does this skull look like and how is it giving so much information? Yeah, I mean, this is a, a relatively complete skull, you know, kind of a once in a decade or, or more sort of find. And there are a couple things to say about this skull. First off, it's primitive, both in the, the its shape and its size. It's got a small brain. And in some ways, the authors say it, it looks a bit like some of these very early, possibly hominin fossils. Uh, I say possibly hominin because we're at the boundary where the common ancestor of humans and chimpanzees uh, exists five or six million years ago. And there's a lot of controversy over which fossils are on this lineage. So this fossil, which is, we think, definitely on the hominin lineage, it's starting to look like those primitive things. So the authors are hopeful it could shed some origins on, on hominins. It's also got some I don't know if modern uh, features is the right term, but it's some, some unusual features that, that you don't see even in, in Lucy's species. And that's how we actually know that it wasn't a direct ancestor of Lucy's. It's got a kind of flared cheeks, which you see in, in I think, much later species of Australopithecus and even in other later species. So, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a riddle. It's a piece of a puzzle. But I think, you know, authors and you know commenters agree that this is a really important find that's going to give people a lot to chew over for decades to come. Mm. I mean, what I will say, though, is, of course, N equals 1 in this case. I mean, it seems like the more puzzle pieces we find, the more confusing the puzzle gets. And from what you're saying, then, maybe it's it's muddied the waters, then it's not A to B to C, then sort of direct species lineage. I mean, wh- where do we need to go, maybe, to try and uncover this or to try and clean this up a bit better? Well, fundamentally, there is, you know, if we draw back from humans all the way back, there is a straight evolution. But that's only one part of it. So we're we're dealing with a very bushy tree and incomplete fossil evidence. And just because something isn't, you know, on this straight line that goes to to you or me doesn't mean it's not important and it's not revealing about our species and our early history. Well, Ewan, let's move on to our second story today, and it's one that you've written for nature.com slash news. And, uh, well, it's about CRISPR, but maybe not the usual sorts of ways that CRISPR is used. And I know we talk about that technique a lot on this show, but maybe sort of before we begin, maybe can you just give me an overview of what CRISPR is? Yeah, CRISPR the disruptor. Um, CRISPR is CRISPR is a lot of things. I mean, it's it's most famous, right, for being a gene editing tool, a tool that people, you know, are using to make transgenic animals and, and you know, and unfortunately some, some humans. But it's a bacterial immune system or defense system that bacteria use to defend against viruses. And it basically, it's a system that has an enzyme that can recognize a specific piece of DNA and cut that DNA. And people, very smart people, have taken advantage of it for all sorts of applications. Yeah, and I mean, certainly gene editing is, is the thing that I think of when I hear the word CRISPR. But it seems like this kind of uh, cutting technique has been used in maybe a new way that I certainly hadn't considered. So the latest twist is using CRISPR to make smart materials. That is materials that can respond to some, you know, some stimulus, some genetic signal and change their shape in response, which is pretty crazy. Well, it is, it is quite out there. I mean, what, what sort of materials are these then? What, what, I mean, how are they made? So the materials in this paper, which were developed by a group at MIT and the Wyss Institute at Harvard, they were using uh, materials called hydrogels. And as the name suggests, they are mostly water, but they're also based on polymers like polyacrylamide or polyethylene glycol. 
And in recent years, people have been incorporating DNA into these hydrogels. So they call them DNA hydrogels. And in many cases, the DNA serves as kind of a scaffold that holds them together. And, and DNA is great because it's easily synthesizable. You know, you can make it into lots of different neat structures. And so there's been a lot of exciting things going on in this area of DNA hydrogels. And, uh, and, and what then, pray tell, could these hydrogels be used for them with their scaffold of DNA? DNA hydrogels have existed before and people have tried to and, and I think succeeded in turning these DNA hydrogels into kind of smart sensors that, that change their shape. The advance that this paper does is to use CRISPR. And the way this works is that if you've got a DNA hydrogel, you can input a sequence in it that CRISPR recognizes. And they used a, a specific form of CRISPR that once it recognizes this target sequence, it cuts that and then it goes on and cuts like all the other single-stranded bits of DNA that hold this thing together. And that can do something in response to it. It could release, say, an antiviral molecule. The authors showed that you can release human cells. I mean, they even created uh, electronic circuits that go on or off when a biological signal is triggered. So, wow. So a myriad of possibilities then. Has anything actually been sort of created using this technology yet? Yeah, they've got a, I wouldn't say it's a, a prototype. It's more of like, a, you know, kind of a test. But some of the authors of this paper are interested in using CRISPR technology as a disease surveillance mechanism. And they've worked on this tool that when a virus such as Ebola is present, you get a, a color change. And they kind of adapted this using these CRISPR hydrogels. And in one application, they coupled detection of Ebola genetic material to a wireless signal. And so I think in, in the experiment, a student or a scientist with a, a wireless detector was able to put this detector next to a testing chamber that had this kind of smart hydrogel in it. And in the presence of a very tiny quantity of Ebola DNA, it sent the wireless signal and said, ping, you know, Ebola. And, you know, when there was no Ebola, it did not send a ping. So, you could see that you could turn this into a, a wireless diagnostic lab that you know could be run with your, your smartphone or tablet or something like that in an actual outbreak zone. Uh, so instead of having to look for you know a color change on, on something, you can just get a readout on your phone. That's one of the possible applications. But you know, I think this is something that I talk to a few material scientists or people who are experts in materials, and they say this is a genuine advance. They're excited to get to work on this and just see uh, just because – CRISPR is, you know, making things possible that didn't seem possible before. Well, Ewan, thank you so much for joining me. Listeners, of course, head over to nature.com slash news for more on these stories. That's all for this week. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, don't forget you can leave us a review. You can do that on Apple Podcasts or on most other podcast providers. I'm Shamini Bandel. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.